Welcome to the Do One Better podcast, where every week I focus on philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi, and I hope you'll enjoy the podcast. Keep on listening if you want to improve the world. Welcome, everyone. Today I have a wonderful guest who I've known for a couple of years, Girish Menon, who is the chief executive of Action Aid UK. I will let him introduce himself. He's been around this field since 85, more or less. And before being an ActionAid, deputy CEO of WaterAid for 10 years and Plan International before that. So sustainability and the international space is something he knows very well. I do know that ActionAid focus quite a bit on women and girls and preventing violence and improving their lives, particularly the most disadvantaged and marginalized segments. And it's fitting uh, that today is the 8th of March. So it's International Women's Day. It's a pleasure seeing you again. And tell us a little bit about yourself and your work here and ActionAid. Thank you very much, Alberto. It's a pleasure to talk to you as well. As you rightly said, today is International Women's Day, a day when we mark all the struggles and the challenges that women and girls around the world, especially those living in poverty, experience on a day-to-day basis. But these are not exclusively women and girls living in poverty. And therefore, this whole discussion around sustainability and creating or aspiring for a world that is better, safer, fairer, and more equal is really, really important. As you rightly said, uh, I started work in this sector in 1985 um, with a small organization, which then was a very small organization in Western India called the Aga Khan Rural Support Mm -hmm. Program. Uh, It was all about uh, economic empowerment of people who lived in a very drought-prone area. And that was my first engagement on anything to do with social development, working with local communities as a community organizer, as a program organizer, and really understanding the basics of what life can be for people who don't have the same privileges that we understand and we see. And from there, moving on to ActionAid uh, in India for 10 years, uh, where I understood what human rights-based development was all about. It was at that time quite new to ActionAid. The whole gender equality discussion was quite new to ActionAid, and I was incredibly privileged to have been part of those conversations and learned as part of the process. Moved on to Plan International, where I learned the basics of child rights and why it's Mm -hmm. so important to listen to the voices of children, then went on to the Department for International Development, or DFID, which is yep. UK's gov- UK government's overseas development assistance program. I was a social development advisor and brought me to understand a lot more about policy influencing, the value of research and evidence, but also the incredible role of government and intergovernmental mm-hmm. bodies in addressing questions about sustainability. It was a time when the Millennium Development Goals was coming to an end and there were all the exciting discussions that were just coming up. And that was a time when I joined WaterAid and uh, there it was an opportunity for me to work across Africa and Asia and understand in depth the issues around water sanitation and hygiene sectors and how, again, it, it has to be a compact between local communities, the public sector, the private sector and international organizations to to ensure that people have access to safe water sanitation and hygiene. And now, uh, four years in ActionAid, uh, we have been uh, leading on the strategy on rights of women and girls, 
again, I was incredibly privileged to be working with a whole range of really committed, passionate, dedicated, and knowledgeable colleagues, both here in the UK and with colleagues in our international federation. Uh, and in 2017, we came up with a strategy, which has got a very simple heading. Mm -hmm. It's just called Together with Women and Girls. That's where we are. That's the journey that we are on. That's why I'm absolutely delighted that we're having this discussion on International Women's Day. So thank you for choosing the day. It's wonderful. Thank you so much for that. It's a great insight. One thing that strikes me from the outset is that there is this narrative going through everything you've done about international development, yet also there are different sectors that you've been focusing on through chunks of four, five, ten years. So whether it's uh, early childhood development, whether it's about women's rights and empowerment, mm -hmm. uh, water uh, safety, sanitation. Mm -hmm. Is there a learning curve that you have to do every time you embark on a new sector? Because naturally, at this stage, you're an expert in what you do, but were you an expert in, uh, in women's rights and uh, girls' rights uh, four years ago when you first came on board? And what was that journey like? I think that though, Technically, on paper, I've been around for 34 years. Right. It always, always seemed to be on a very steep learning curve, always. And the reason I say that is, is with a lot of humility, just because there is so much in people's lives, in communities, in countries that we just don't understand. And what we see is pretty much the tip of the iceberg. Um, so whether it was about land or agriculture-related work or gender or child rights, you do understand that it's a very complex net of relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, there is always a tendency for us as external people to have a theory or a hypothesis with which we go in. But the one thing I've constantly learned is that, that that's something you need to keep outside and try to understand what's happening in a local community. So the problem might seem to be very simple that a girl is not allowed to go to school mm -hmm. and therefore the solution would be to have a school that is very close to the girl's family or the girl's community and problem solved. That is how somebody like me would look at it as a very linear solution to what might seem to be a simple problem for people like us coming in from relatively better backgrounds. But in country after country or community after community, uh, you just learn your lessons that there, there is so much more to that. It could be, it's not just about education. It's about the culture, the values, the norms. Because mind you, probably the parents never wanted the girls to come into this world in the first place because you are working with a community where female feticide and female infanticide is quite rampant where the boy child is valued so high that the moment the girl comes into the family she's seen as a seen as a burden and the only way you mitigate the burden is to make her work from as young an age as possible in your farm in your vegetable garden taking care of young kids fetching water fetching firewood or just generally helping around in the house because the mum has to go and work outside and that's when you start understanding that there's so much more that it's not just about education. Though we might come in with an education intervention or a solution in our heads, it's a lot more about how do you, how do you even start the conversation about the role, the rights uh, of girls in that particular community. In some other cases, you find that 
it's it's partly because the distance is uh, is, is is doesn't make it safe enough for a girl to go from home mm -hmm. to her school because she could be abused or she could be raped or she could be kidnapped and forced into marriage. We have seen that and we have interacted with lots of girls who have had those kinds of experiences. In some cases, it's as simple as a fact that they don't have a toilet uh, in the school. So the moment they start menstruating, getting to that age, the only option for them is to drop out because it's shameful. Mm -hmm. They feel quite ashamed and they feel that the dignity is violated because they don't have a safe sanitation facility. Boys make fun of them. In some cases, we have found that girls stop going to school just because the local school teacher or the headmaster started abusing the girls uh, and nobody could question him because he's an influential person in a village. So, Coming back to your point about the learning curve, in every single case, I and mean, the one thing that I had to tell myself constantly mm -hmm. is that even if I have a degree or a master's behind my name, don't take anything for granted. You right. just have to keep learning. You just have to keep on finding out and keep on asking the question, as one of my professors used to tell me, ask the question, why, at least five times before you even start understanding what the issue is. Then think about the solution. But the solution has to be driven by the local communities in a way that is appropriate there and your role always should be to support, facilitate and, and engage with that conversation. That's fascinating. I remember when, when I was chief executive of the Novak Djokovic Foundation, you and I had lunch or coffee, mm -hmm. uh, maybe about two years ago now, and that conversation is very insightful. We exchanged so many notes on what works and what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. When you first came on board at this current role, you um, you took it upon yourself to meet as many peers as possible from other uh, mm -hmm. organizations, mm -hmm. uh, foundations, and do the same, exchange notes and, mm -hmm. and be a sponge and take in information. Tell us a little bit about that process. How, how do you learn from your peers and, and the collaborative spirit that's out there? A lot of times people think people, uh, you know, that organizations are very territorial, but mm -hmm. I think there's a lot, of, a lot more collaboration going on than people realize. Absolutely. When I joined about nearly four years ago, this was the first time I was doing a chief executive role. And so that right. in itself was yet another learning curve sure. for me out of all the learning curves I've had in my life. And I knew that my board would support me and I knew I could go back to my chair and ask her questions and, and get a steer and guidance. But at the end of it, uh, in a chief executive's role, as you would absolutely uh, relate to based on your own experiences it's quite lonely on the top mm -hmm. and you have a responsibility to support the board and you have a responsibility to support your teams and and just get going you are pretty much a key ambassador and representative of the organization so my tactic was basically to approach a number of chief executives from other not-for-profit organizations and I prioritized that uh, in the first three months of my role here at ActionAid, I met at least 25 of them. And I really, it, it did mean I had to put in very long hours because you're going through your own induction and you've got your own workloads and a bursting inbox. Everybody wanted that problem to be solved day before yesterday. Sure. But it was also important for me to say, hang on, I need a bit of time for myself. And my, my, so the first reaction was when I wrote to, all these different chief executives, nobody said no. Mm -hmm. No, It always started with, welcome. Uh, I'm sure you'll do a great job. I'm very happy to meet with you. And, and it'll be really interesting talking to you as well and find out where you are. Correct. 
And all those conversations pretty much started by me introducing them because I didn't know them well. Uh, and then with a very simple question, give me some advice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what should I do and what, what I shouldn't? And all that advice has been such incredibly valuable. Some of them was about how do you just lead an organization? Some of it was about managing change processes. Mm -hmm. Some was about how do you get the best out of working with your board and, and how do you make sure that you have a, a very fruitful, respectful and trustworthy relationship. Some were about how do you deal with a very challenging external environment because this was 2015 right. and the sector had started experiencing lots of pressures. That was when there were a lot of uh, scandals around fundraising practices mm -hmm. and we are constantly under scrutiny. Uh, and and all, all of that gave me a lot of confidence that this sector is not as territorial as you rightly pointed out, because that was exactly my impression, that we all fundraise from the same market. Sure. We always go to the same public, but there was a very high degree of sharing and learning and an openness to say, we made this mistake, so mm -hmm. you watch out. Uh, and equally... Almost every conversation ended by saying that, you know, if you ever are in doubt or if you think that a conversation might help, do not hesitate to pick up the phone and talk. And mind you, I'll do likewise when you are also settling yeah. your role. So I think that process of learning was very, very valuable and nothing, just nothing can compensate for and that. And that continues, presumably, right? That totally continues. Uh, uh, at this point in time, of course, I'm fortunate enough to be part of a few groups, informal groups and formations. So we meet over a drink. We meet over mm -hmm. a meal, we meet over formal meetings and then on the sidelines and then we yeah. follow it up with one to one. So it's much better now because now actually I know them better, they know me better and what I, the only way I can return that, uh, that, that valuable gift that I got was by doing likewise for new CEOs of sure. organizations. So whenever I know, uh, whenever I hear of one of them uh, coming in new, I try to be proactive and reach out to them and say, hey, welcome, you know, I'm here, just give me a shout, you know, we'll be very happy to talk and more, more than anything to get to know you and see how we can work together. And I guess a lot of that, uh, the most fruitful or juicy bits of information come from those informal conversations. Sometimes you go to a conference and there's an agenda, mm -hmm. it's all very structured, but you don't really get to the nitty gritty unless you're having a coffee, yes. establishing a rapport with somebody and, um, and letting your guard down a little bit and exchanging notes and being very candid about that. One thing you touched on that's really interesting is about new CEOs coming into the fore mm. and you being aware of that and trying to give them a, a, a little bit of a, of a beneficial nudge. I know certainly from my angle, um, I have peers who are CEOs at other foundations and organizations with whom I've engaged and learned. There's also some CEOs, they're 10 years older, mm. 20 years older, mm. and they're running organizations with a balance sheet of a billion dollars. Okay. So I, I look at them as mentors. Mm. And I imagine you probably have some people who you look up to as well who, who give you that benefit as well, right, in terms of guidance. I do, I do. Um, again, uh, um, uh, when I look around my peers, many of them have been CEOs for a longer time. Mm -hmm. And CEOs of more than one organization, people who have been on boards of many other organizations and have been uh, are currently CEOs of fairly large organizations with incredibly wider responsibility. So there the conversations take a, 
but slightly deeper turn because there it's me genuinely trying to get them to mentor me. Right. Uh, but many of them are so incredibly modest that they don't even want to be seen as a mentor. They just uh -huh. see this as a normal part of a conversation. But then it's in my mind that I see them as a mentor. And I know that if I am in trouble, these are the people I talk to. Mm -hmm. If I want some other conversations, those are the people I talk to. And, and, uh, and, and that, that goes on. It's such a symbiotic thing because, you know, you, you learn so much from what others have gone through, even when they've gone through some really deep crisis. Yeah. So you have all kinds of people. You have people who are incredibly successful and continue to be so. We've got people who are in the midst of some very serious crisis. And then you watch them from the outside and say, my goodness, look at how calm and how mm -hmm. resilient they are. Because maybe if I were in that position, I might just jump ship and say, hey, bye, I can't manage this. So I get a lot of courage from what they do. Yeah. And it also kind of tells me that some of the issues that I'm handling in, handling are you know, much, much manageable or, or not at that scale at all. So surely you should be able to manage. It gives you a lot of courage. Yeah. Is that one of those things about being CEO that you need to be somewhat dispassionate and composed in, 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 in the face of adversity or some unexpected challenges? I do think so, yes. Um, my I know my colleagues have heard me say that many, many times and now they're replaying back, it, back to me as well because I often say it's about resilience. Mm -hmm. um, because uh, yes, we are human and there's only this much we can take in. We, we are vulnerable in very many different ways. Uh, we have our bad moments, uh, our weak moments, and sometimes it's important to let your guard down so that sure. you people around you also see that you're natural, you're human. But equally, uh, it's about doing it in a way that also conveys a sense of resilience, which is about saying, hang on, let me acknowledge that there's a problem. Let me acknowledge there's a challenge. And very importantly, let me acknowledge that I need to do something about it and I can do something about it. Maybe you don't have to do it right now here today, mm -hmm. but it is something you need to do. And then try to make some of those choices. Is this something that you need to do yourself? Or is it something that you support somebody else doing? So that, you know, if, if, you're, if you're creating a culture of empowerment and trust, the, the best thing you can possibly do is to help others, enable mm -hmm. others to, to address some of those issues better rather than it being, you know, they being dependent on you. Sure. So resilience is important. Being dispassionate is important. In one of the coaching sessions that I had with one of my coaches, she uses word about uh, suspended judgment. Okay. And her point was that when you hear something, take some time before you react suspend your judgment because mm -hmm. somebody is telling you with some purpose so don't just listen to what they're saying but try to go behind and say why are they saying that and why are they saying that to you and why are they saying that to you now so reflect on that rather than jumping in with an answer give some assurance to that person that you have heard them out and that you will do something about it but surely that person is also not expecting you to shoot off an email or something and for somebody like me who tends to be very spontaneous and uh -huh. very reactive it's a very good advice. So suspend the judgment for how long? It depends upon the issue. Okay. So uh, sometimes it has been literally uh, just sleep overnight. Okay. Uh, so you hear something, there's a problem, there's an issue, you feel very strongly about it, you feel you can do something about it, and you're bashing out this email, but then put it in your draft folder and say, I've got it out of my system. Mm -hmm. Let me sleep over it, come back 
to a, to it tomorrow morning or day after tomorrow morning or after the weekend right. read it again and say does that still make sense or were you overreacting because you know trust me i have got into lots of problems in the past for reacting at the spur of the moment I think we've all been there. you think that's the right thing to do there's a sense sure. of bravado about it like you know sure. oh, i can do it and often that's absolutely the wrong thing to do so yes the dispassionate thing i think that word that you mentioned is absolutely mm-hmm. critical and the last thing i would say is that find a way to de-stress yourself okay and that is so very important and for example i i i love singing so i have a i have a, a karaoke app um we'll, we will ask you uh, to do that during the podcast <laughs> <laughs> and uh. almost every day at the end of work when i go home i just get onto it and sing for 15 minutes 20 You're minutes kidding, really? and i absolutely love it because that kind of closes things off for me and that's go, excellent re- reflecting back uh when i've had some really challenging moments or challenging days those days i've sung more and i could go to sleep peacefully mm-hmm. because i feel that you know it's about that creating that space between that work and you yourself and sure. that 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 barrier of being dispassionate so you can now step back and say okay now i can see it with a bit of an external perspective now that yeah. i've done my singing i'm not two steps away from that that's excellent that's so very good i had no idea i had no idea it doesn't have to be singing it can be anything you could go for that's a run something. you could go to the gym you could go and watch a movie but you really need to have some kind of a closure at the end of the yeah. day just to de-stress yourself because tomorrow is another day talking about stress was it difficult when you first became ceo people always say oh, well you know if you haven't done it before then maybe you're not the right candidate for this job we want somebody who's done it before we want somebody who's worked for a similar organization before uh and i think program directors fundraising directors operations uh directors who haven't done this chief executive role before maybe think they can't quite do it but i don't know any any bits of wisdom there that you'd like to impart for 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 those who are looking for that next step and maybe are a bit apprehensive about applying for for a chief executive role but mm. That's a very good question Alberto because I went through the same myself uh and because I was a programs director um and a deputy CEO uh I thought I'm ready for the role mm-hmm. uh, and then when I started applying for roles I found that if I was up against somebody who'd already done a CEO role either as a substantive post or an interim post you don't get a look in right and so it is really important for me to think about how do you even position yourself so people think you're even a credible candidate and you know at least get through the interview stage because my view was that once i get to the interview stage i might be able to smash it but sure. i need to get into the room sure. in the first place fortunately i came across a course which was about uh, preparing yourself to be a chief executive okay it's a very short module of 3 days 3 modules 3 days each where uh and and not at all expensive uh it was at the cas center mm-hmm. for charity effectiveness and i i did that mod- i i did that course uh which actually opens your eyes into what the chief executive role is all about because we all have a slightly different notion about what the yeah. role is yeah that role that course is tailored to uh, make you better aware of what it entails to be a ceo uh and they do it through a mixture of lectures and guests coming in you know mm-hmm. uh, sitting ceos who come and talk about the role or people who have stepped out of a ceo role after 5 years 10 years so they can sure. reflect so you get a lot of interaction you got a lot of 
discussions amongst the group which is just about 20 or 25 people and and all these different lectures looking into things like regulation leadership strategy development finances and at the end of the course it was very interesting that in our cohort of about 25 people about four or five actually said it's it's a great course now i know i'm not good enough to be a ceo because my passion lies somewhere else really? so i don't really want to be a ceo but i'm glad i even tested the waters mm-hmm. the other 20 of us said oh it's brilliant yeah let's go <laughs> we're up for it let's go for it and most of them are now ceos you yeah. know largely because of their own uh, individual pursuits and excellence or skills but because it just prepares you for this so my advice to anybody who would like to step up is basically fundamentally ask this question do you know enough about the role right if you don't know find out talk to people who are currently in that role so that you know exactly what the role is all about and what's expected of you try to find a course try to find a mentor and ask yourself the hard question then find out how do you position yourself and where might some of those skill sets be so a small a small practical thing is uh I, I do mentor a couple of people and I have mentored them in the past few, uh, past few years and they are currently in senior roles mm-hmm. and they're aspiring to be chief executives. My one advice to them was try to get onto a board right? because as a CEO, you have to work with the board. So if, you're, if you have not been on the board, that's something you might want to address very quickly. Get onto a board of any organization that, that, that you're interested in because then you see things from a slightly different perspective. Right. And and then when you go in for a CEO interview, you can tell them confidently that you know what governance is all about because you have been a board member and this is how you have seen a CEO work. So you know, small things like that does help. No, I think that's excellent advice, actually. I think that's excellent. Let me ask you, one of the challenges sitting in that CEO chair is facing the unexpected crisis that hits you on a Tuesday morning mm-hmm. Action Aid is an international organization, and I'd like to hear a little bit more about the global footprint that you have. Uh, but you're, I know you deal with a lot of delivery partners in far-flung places. And you're based here in London, even though Action Aid is, itself is global, but you're based here in London, and you're a big chunk of what Action Aid is all about. Um, when I speak with philanthropists, or individuals who want to get engaged in social entrepreneurship and transformative change, uh, one of the key questions is like, A, you know, where do I start? What thematic area should I look at? But a key one is about how do I choose a delivery partner mm-hmm. in Ghana mm-hmm. or Southeast Asia? How do I ensure that, um, that they're credible, that they're not going to run off with the money, mm-hmm. that they're going to deliver what they say they do? Can I manage it long distance? Do I need somebody on the ground? Tell me a little bit about that uh, because obviously you want to mitigate risk you want to achieve impact, you want your donors, your funders to trust you to deliver what you say you're going to deliver. It's a big part of the conversation. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Yes, indeed. Uh, so just to take your first question first, a little bit about action aid so that I can respond to yeah. your specific questions slightly better. We were the global headquarters once upon a time, which was uh, uh, till 2003. We were founded in 1972 in the UK and London was the global headquarters and then it was from London that we expanded. We initially started work in India and Kenya and then expanded to other African countries, Asian countries, Southeast Asia, Latin America as well. Mm-hmm. And then when, uh, when we came to a certain level of resources, which was probably sometime in the 90s, we also set up offices in Italy, 
in the US, in Greece and other places to, to, to diversify our fundraising right. across you know, what's broadly referred to as the global north, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Australia, and then eventually it was Denmark and other countries. But in 2003, there was a big discussion here uh, at, at the board level, but also at the management level, where the then CEO, uh, somebody called Salil Shetty, and the then chair of the board, somebody called Ken Burnett, had this discussion and felt that if we are an international organization, if we are a global organization, we need to reflect some of the changes that we see globally. Okay. Because the world is getting much more diverse, power is more shared, there are more emerging countries, emerging economies, emerging global formulations. And so uh, if we are really, if, if we want to be truly global, we need to embrace that change within mm-hmm. the organization. And, and through that discussion came up this idea of being a global federation instead of a unitary organization that's headquartered in London. Right. So for Action in UK, it was a, a massive, massive change because from being the global headquarters, Action UK was now going to become a member of a global federation, which gives up its headquartership and it gives up its mm-hmm. the ownership of the name and the logo to the wider federation. And to support the federation with its work, we set up at that time a global secretariat with the job of convening and coordinating the function of the federation. Right. So today, as we speak, across the 45 countries that we are in, in 30 countries, they're all independent members. And some of these independent members, just to give you a taste, is... Uh, countries like Vietnam, Bangladesh, India, Kenya, Ghana, Nigeria, Brazil, and a number of European affiliates, as we call them. So these are all independent members who report to their, to their own national boards. Mm-hmm. And we come together as a global assembly once a year, which is represented by our, mem- uh, our board member, typically the chair, which is the highest policy-making body. Now, it sounds a bit complex, but the simplest way of explaining that it's something like the United Nations. I mean, we're definitely not at that grand scale, but just as the UN has got member states who then meet every September in New York in the General Assembly, we have these member affiliates who would meet once a year in one of the countries where we, where we are based and go through uh, you know, our strategy, the progress that we are making and how we work together as a global federation. Now... Going back to your question about what philanthropies are looking for, this is what we think is one of our strongest points okay. because we strongly believe that the change that happens at the community level and at the country level must be led by themselves. Mm-hmm. And rather than having a Western solution, which might, which may have worked very well in the West in the past, it may not be the right thing to do. Equally, it's not about bringing in a theoretical knowledge into a practical domain, though there's a lot of uh, value in doing that, in mixing that. Uh, the, 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 the focus was on saying that the national leadership should be driving the agenda for that country. So the, the board of ActionAid Ghana and the management team of ActionAid Ghana are best placed to work in Ghana to find out who the right partners are and to identify the right priorities because they know what the Ghanaian government is all about, they know what the resource gaps are, they know what the solutions to those problems are. And then our role as ActionAid UK 
would be to listen to what Ghanaians have to say, to work with them, to get that collaboration going strong, to identify areas where we can support them. Mm -hmm. And our support largely has been through raising resources for them, but equally by working with the British government and by British companies so that we can make a very strong case about the role that the British government and the British companies and, and the British you know, the public can play in supporting the, uh, the, the programs that Ghana are leading on. Right. Now, that has also meant that we need to have a very strong relationship that's based on trust, respect, and mutual accountability. In the Federation, we have got very strong systems and processes that are globally owned and mm -hmm. globally followed. And when we talk to philanthropists, that's what we talk about because they rightly ask us questions about what is our oversight of the funds that, let's say, leave the shores of UK and into Ghana. What we then bring to the table is about talking about what we have in Ghana in terms right. of the, the investments, in terms of systems, processes, checks, balances and controls and how that is aligned to the local context and what our accountability is to make sure that we deliver to the donors' expectations as well. So we talk about this whole spectrum of a supporter experience mm -hmm. where at one end of the spectrum you have the supporters and where at other end of the spectrum you have the local communities. Mm -hmm. And our role is to make that credible connection between the supporters and the communities to make sure that supporters really do get a very good view of how their support is helping transform lives in Ghana. Underpinning that are systems of accountability and transparency, yeah. be that through a financial accounts, be it through audits, be it through evaluate program evaluations, or be it through our own internal leadership development programs to make sure that we have the right staff with the right skills and they're placed in the right places. Regarding the program evaluation and the impact, I mean that's a, it's a very topical field, but also if you really want to make a change, you, mm -hmm. you have to measure what you're doing and, yeah. and see how that's uh, transforming the world. Um, before we get into that bit, uh, quick question, do you then necessarily uh, have to have a national director or a, a country office in place in order to do work in that specific country? Or are you still able to get yourself involved in a specific country without necessarily having a country director or a national office? Just curious about that. Uh, it, it's a very interesting question you're asking because that's exactly an exercise that's currently going on within the Global Federation. Right. Uh, there are definitely very strong advantages of having a national office because it's not just about delivering programs, but it's also about influencing national policies. And often you're not taken seriously if you're not in the country. You're always seen as an outsider. Because in many countries, you know, as we are experiencing in, in our country as well, there are very strong nationalistic tendencies mm -hmm. of, you know, the, the national determining what should happen in the country rather than international. So where we have strong national entities, you know, there's, a, there's a very strong legitimacy for them to be in that country. Uh, they lead on programs, they identify opportunities where they can influence policies and engage with the national public as well. If you don't have that presence, you miss out on all of that. Right. But it's not a complete. Uh, uh, it, it, it's not a disaster at all because you can still have remote relationships with other organisations mm -hmm. already there and channel your support through them. Though that support will be less qualitative and it'll be less robust and less sustainable, uh, if that makes sense, because sure. we're not there uh, and 
they would be a bit more distanced than or, or they may not have the right level of intensity of support uh, that might be needed for, for those kinds of programs. But that's something that we are thinking of right now. So for example, we have a team that's based in Jordan okay. and they're called the Arab Regional Initiative. So that's the ActionAid Arab Regional Initiative. They have the remit of working across the Middle East and North Africa. Mm -hmm. And we don't have offices in, in any of the other countries in that region, be it Middle East or Northern African uh, countries nor do we have any plans to. Right. So as we speak, in fact, I was speaking uh, to the country director just yesterday. She is uh, exploring options of working in Lebanon, in Yemen, and a couple of other countries uh, with a base in Jordan. Mm -hmm. So that would be a very interesting model for us to explore going forward. We are also looking at some countries where we feel that we haven't actually reaped the dividends, especially in policy terms, of having a national presence there. Right. So uh, come June, we might have some really tough conversations within the Federation to say, should we be actually there in those countries or can we have a more cost-effective way of delivering programs? Because you know, at the end of the day, it's about the local communities benefiting most from those programs. So there's a debate coming up and we are all preparing ourselves for those discussions in June. Do you need a functional government, a national government in place wherever you're doing business? And I ask that because some of the philanthropy conferences I go to and you do hear, well, if you want to achieve system-wide change, if you want to really make a difference, you necessarily have to have the government behind you, the local government behind you. But sometimes you don't have that luxury. You might have a country where there is no proper national government or mm. where there is but it's dysfunctional mm. or counterproductive they mm. might be against some of the more enlightened views that you might want mm. to drive forward what's the take on that do you necessarily need a national government that's going to be working with you or can you achieve things despite possibly not having it there so my view is that that we can achieve things even without a national government, but they won't be sustainable. Okay. Because at the end of the day, the reason why we are in, in all these countries and communities is because we feel that the governments should be delivering programs. It is their accountability. That's what they raise taxes for. That's why they've been elected and they're in power. So they should be doing it. But we are there because there's some kind of a democratic deficit or a governance deficit. So we are there, we are there to help tide over that deficit and therefore support mm -hmm. the communities to be able to develop their confidence, their capacities and indeed their solidarity to be able to demand greater accountability and transparency from the local and national governments. And if we, are if we succeed in doing that, the role of organizations like ourselves would be significantly reduced and that would be the right thing. Yeah. Ideally, we should be writing ourselves out of these jobs sure. and go to places where it's not there. So we, th these things do happen at the national level. So we have got several, several cases where we've been there for a long time and the communities have come up to a certain level where the local mm -hmm. organizations are strong enough and we feel that now we can move on from there so that actually it doesn't create a sense of another level of dependency because that would be absolutely the wrong thing to do. So yes, especially when we look, now look at the Sustainable Development Goals, sure. for example, which is a compact across all the countries who are signatory to that, you need that framework and you need the institutions behind that framework for that to have any meaning to a person living in that country. And our role would basically be to see how can we constantly work towards reducing the gap between the governments mm -hmm. 
and its citizens. Mm -hmm. Are you optimistic about the Sustainable Development Goals? So for some listeners who may not know, I think it was 2015, UN Sustainable Development Goals or SDGs. Um, goal number four is on education, two on hunger, and so forth. There's a variety of, uh, a huge range. Mm. Um, and the target is 2030, mm -hmm. which used to seem like a long way away, but mm. it's very close uh, by. Are you optimistic about our ability as a planet to achieve the SDGs, uh, or is it more aspirational? It's anchoring the conversation in the right spot, but we may not necessarily be there at 2030. I, as a person, am quite optimistic. So I that optimism would rub into my optimism for the SDGs as well. And the reason I'm saying that is because I've seen a fundamental shift in how the MDGs were done mm -hmm. and how the SDGs were done. The Millennium Goals. The Millennium Development yeah. Goals were pretty much as, as the folklore goes, was done by five men sitting in New York in a room and they agreed that that's the right thing to do. Now, I don't know whether they were five or whether they're men or more or less older than rural, <laughs> but the point is that that it was done by a small group of people in the hallowed uh, uh -huh. uh, environs of, of, a, of a UN office in, in New York. So obviously, uh, there was no money behind it and there was no uh, political will or traction to get it operationalized. Uh, I have seen uh, and I've actually also been engaged in some of the discussions in the run-up to the Sustainable Development Goals. I've seen a greater political interest, political leadership. I've seen a very strong civil society engagement mm -hmm. across countries. So for example, I was there in Liberia when um, uh, one of the discussions were hosted ahead of the Sustainable Development Goals being signed off. And when you travel across the world, you do see that there's some mention of Sustainable Development Goals here and there. Mm -hmm. It is not as robust as it should be. It's not as sustained as it should be. It's, it's not, there isn't as much clear money as there should be. In fact, there's a rollback in the case of many countries because there isn't enough money that's put behind that. But I think that the framework has given something for people to get their handle on. Because at the end of the day, people are also tired of seeing some of these problems and challenges because I think everybody yeah. realizes that a better world is good for everybody. A more equal world is good for everybody. A safer world is good for everybody because even if you convert that into just commonsensical businesses, mm -hmm. is that the more prosperous people are, the more businesses will thrive, the more economies will thrive. You can look at it from a human rights angle by saying that the more people are able to realize their rights, you know, you're exploring their full potential and, and the world can become a much better place on the planet. There's a very strong climate lobby, as you rightly pointed out, because sure. there's a, now a genuine, we just have to look at the school children now involved in all the climate change issues. We started with one 15-year-old girl protesting outside the Swedish parliament. Now, these are surely signs. 2030 is really not that far away. It's just about 10 years away. And 10 years is not enough to manage these whole, the whole range of problems that we have. And that's where uh, you know, people like Bill Gates have constantly pointed out in terms of what the world has achieved and trying to think about if we have achieved that with that level of commitment, if we have more commitment, we can achieve a lot more. So the way smallpox has been eradicated, mm -hmm. the way we're trying to eradicate malaria, the way we have, uh, you know, where the, where, where the much uh, fewer maternal mortality rates, uh, much lower infant, infant mortality rates, many more girls in school, many more opportunities. So it, it is definitely a mixed bag. 
And uh, we have every reason to be pessimistic if we just look at conflicts or lack of political engagement or this very nationalistic views mm -hmm. and, and lack of international solidarity as, as we see a lot of polarization uh, uh, across the world. But I, I still think that I'm optimistic and I would possibly even say I'm cautiously optimistic because I think people are realizing that time is running out. Time is running out and people are actually experiencing whether it's pollution in London, whether it is uh, you know repeated droughts in parts of Africa, whether it's migration from Middle East to Europe, it's all, it's all at your doorstep. So a point has come where people are saying, possibly we need to do a bit more. And our, the role of organizations like ours uh, and indeed businesses is just to you know, take that moment right. and, and really leverage that uh, and, and, and see much more of that. So for example, Unilever has been, you know, when Paul mm -hmm. Coleman was heading Unilever, there's a lot of push from his side and hopefully the business community will rise up to it. Hopefully governments will rise up to it. This year, the UK is reporting uh, on its own performance on the SDGs. So mm -hmm. whether that will bring in a greater sense of urgency to what UK can do both, not just in the domestic level, but also the international level, waits to be seen. This reporting on the SDGs and progress towards the SDGs, I guess it goes back to the point you mentioned a little bit earlier about program evaluation and impact. I mean, mm. ultimately at the smaller level, you got to make sure that whatever resources you're deploying are, are changing lives, are improving the mm. situation for those who are in need of charitable intervention. How do you guys go about measuring impact? And I know it's a huge question, mm. uh, but across 45 countries, mm. different programs, not everything's necessarily standardized. Tell me a little bit about how you go about it, how important it is, some of the challenges that mm. listeners might want to be aware of as they try to measure impact in their own philanthropic mm. work or charities and yeah. so forth. Right. Uh, it's a big question. It's a, big, it's a very big question. <laughs> I try to be as succinct as possible. Uh, any evaluation process uh, that we undertake, uh, we ensure that the local communities we work with are at the core of it. And we refer to them as rights holders. That's, that's, mm -hmm. what, that's what we refer to them within the Action Aid uh, community. Uh, we, we, we start with the, with, the, uh, with the premise that the rights holders have to be core and central. It has to be led by them. And we have been quite fortunate because over the last 20, 30 years, we have worked on a number of tools, which is on participatory planning, participatory evaluation. So it's been a constant learning curve for us. Uh, we have benefited a lot from uh, what uh, academicians and practitioners like Robert Chambers have helped us with because we actually worked very closely with him. Using some of those participatory approaches, we came out on something called Reflect, which is uh, which, which is a tool and an approach for people to really go deeper into what's happening and the changes that they see at the community level. Mm -hmm. So that not everything is numbers driven, numbers have their space and their value, but it's also the narrative underneath that because all okay. our evaluations try to look at this whole question of have we shifted power? Okay. Because at the end of the day, Development is not just about having more taps and toilets or more better homes or better buildings. It's, it's, if you look at it from a human rights perspective, the whole question is, have we shifted power and have the people who are more vulnerable, who are more marginalized and who are more voiceless, do they feel more confident? Uh, are they being seen? Are they being listened to? And are they able to participate in that? 
And then we look at all the other tangible parts, uh, be it an education program or a health program or an agriculture program, to say these are the stepping stones for them to develop their confidence. So there are a number of approaches uh, using what we refer to as social audits, for example. Mm -hmm. And there are peer reviews where people from one community go to another community to see what's happening and also reflect on whether they are making the right move. What we try not to do is we try not to aggregate these things. Okay. Because the danger of aggregation is sometimes is that you make things a bit too simplistic and you forget uh, or you miss out the richness of those conversations. So the questions would be more around if shifting power is the big question we are asking what is the evidence to show that power has shifted mm -hmm. so for example is there evidence to show that the elected representatives are more responsive to the demands of people is there evidence that uh, women feel that many of the public services are more responsive to their needs as women uh, do children feel that they've had a voice in how schools are run and how schools are managed? Uh, do women have more rights to own land in areas where land ownership by women was an absolute no-no? Mm -hmm. uh, are there centres uh, of... Uh, or, or, or do people feel confident enough to access justice when there are cases of violence, particularly for women and people from the most marginalized background. So looking at the local context and looking at what the program has been trying to deliver, you start asking those questions and then it becomes a very open, transparent conversation, which is then backed up by all the quantitative data because you obviously sure. have the program documents, you've got log frames, you've got indicators. That will only tell you one part of the story. The other part of the story that has to be richly complementing this are these essential questions of has it shifted power? And if you find that it hasn't shifted power, it means that something that you did didn't work or the external context changed so much that what you did was irrelevant, so you might have to start afresh. So, um, yes, so, so across the 45 countries, it's definitely very difficult. But when we have discussions with philanthropists, we try to focus on something which is e easier understood so that we can say in Nepal, we did this evaluation right. which cut across five different communities and this is what happened in those five communities and this is what actually Nepal has learned from those five communities and now are mainstreaming it or incorporating it in the discussions with other Nepalese organizations or the Nepalese government or the Nepalese businesses as the case might be. I love it how you frame the impact conversation through the balance of power and whether it's shifting. Um, which I have to say, not everybody looks at it from that uh, vantage point, but I think it's, it's, it's uh, very sensible to do that. One of the topics that I know you guys focus on, and I've always found it close to my heart, is women's economic empowerment. Mm. Uh, because it touches on so many <clears throat> different sectors and, um, and benefits to individuals, mm. adults and children alike. I remember when I was working uh, at the Novak Djokovic Foundation and we were focused on early childhood development, there was a perennial challenge, uh, which was palpable, in that policymakers, politicians, a lot of the times didn't necessarily pay as much attention as I thought they should to investing in early years, mm. because investing in early years means that the return, economic return, manifests itself in 15, 20 years' time, and it doesn't align well with the election cycle. 
which is much shorter. Mm. So politicians might think about two years, yeah. three years, four mm. years. <clears throat> but I found that if I position things along the lines of women's economic empowerment, then it is in some ways a proxy for the livelihood of children. Yes. Because a woman's uh, degree of educational attainment, uh, her educate, uh, economic standing is correlated to her child's expected life outcomes. Mm. And I thought that's a great bit. And I know the World Bank, and I know when Jim Kim was at the World Bank, women's economic empowerment was a huge thing. And mm. this whole human capital project that they're working on now. And tell me a little bit about women's economic empowerment and how that's a mechanism not only to shift the power balance, but to benefit health, reduce violence, improve education, reduce under five child mortality. Mm. It seems to be one of those focal points that's just so important. Absolutely. Uh, and, and that's why it's, it's very important across all our programs as well. Uh, so there are different ways in which we work on that. The first thing is to see what are the areas that, uh, that women are already occupied in. And, and we know, for example, that two thirds of the farm work is uh, agriculture work is done by women. But when, we, when you look at the control of either the income or the resources, they, they don't have it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's trying to see what opportunities exist for women, be it on land through better farming or better animal rearing, or be they off farm as in local enterprises where you support women in, in, in marketing some of the skills that they have, be it on handicrafts, embroidery or, or, mm -hmm. or anything like that. But... And the very important thing that we try to look at is that what are the factors that stop women from accessing those opportunities? Right. Uh, you know, how much of that are structural factors, how much that are, are, are social factors or other factors? And you find that it's, it's quite a fascinating study in itself. So, for example, if you're looking at the garment industry in Bangladesh, mm -hmm. um, the, 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 the positive side of the story is that a majority of the workers are women. They're the ones who, who are in, in, in numbers. They're the ones who, 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 who participate in that employment. And the data might show that in a very positive light. When you go and dig deeper, you find that actually the employment that they are in is a very exploitative form of employment. Right. They are at the low end of the value chain doing the most unskilled uh, or low skilled part of the work doing putting in very long hours of work 12 hour shifts 14 hour shifts packed like sardines with in very poor working conditions with no child care facilities with very little drinking water water sanitation facilities and then you have disasters like rana plaza that happened where hundreds of women are killed which happened in in dhaka in bangladesh five or six years ago so when you when we think about economic opportunities we definitely try to look at what are the options available in the local setting where women can get better access to those opportunities what support systems can kick in place be it through training or be it through loans uh, that enable women to get into and and use those opportunities better but also what are some of the other fundamental barriers so for example women getting more economic opportunities is no guarantee that their care responsibilities at home will be any less. Mm -hmm. So there might also be the unintended consequence of, you know, repiling on more pressure on the women because you created certain opportunities for women, but they still have to do the childcare, the fuel, the food, care for the elderly. 
and then you might end up you know women working 14 hours 16 hours 18 hours a day so our uh, strategy has been and i've seen that happening in ghana is also to talk about so for example in bangladesh it's been talking to employers and mm -hmm. saying you know it, it it shouldn't just be about work it has to be about decent work right so you treat women with respect you know they have the dignity they need to have the breaks they are human beings they can't work like machines so constantly have that dialogue with employers and say if you have more uh, if you have healthier workers more uh, engaged workers your productivity uh, will be high and it can only work to your benefit so it can be a win-win so again taking it from a power side you know share that power and share those opportunities a little bit more with your workers so you get much higher rates of participation and you follow the local laws and legislations also have the conversation with with your national government to say can you look at these guys please because they might be flouting some laws here and there you know mm -hmm. have a health and safety you know basic things around uh, minimum wages or living wages so those are the kind of conversations you would have in a more formal organized setup if uh, in in ghana what we saw was it was with the farming community where the women identified some of the problems they had one of the key problems they had was Oh, we, we have all this agriculture production, but it takes forever to take them to the market because mm -hmm. we don't have the capacity. So you have the produce rotting. Um, it takes that much longer. And by the time we go there, you know, the, the, the buyers have already gone. So there the intervention was to put in a, a, a community uh, owned uh, vehicle, which is like a three wheeler where people could quickly transfer their produce to the market and come back. But the women also said, but that's not enough. Mm -hmm. You know, you need to do something about the rest of the work that we have as women at home. So it started a conversation with men on unpaid care. Right. And very interestingly, what they started doing was they started maintaining a diary of unpaid care. Okay. So women started writing a daily diary to say, I woke up at this time. It took me this much time to cook food. It took me this much time to fetch water and firewood and, and cooking and then taking care of elderly at home. Then I went and worked on the farm. Then I came back and then I did all those things again. And then show this data to the men. And the men were shocked. Right. The men were shocked because partly for them, it was just the done thing. That's how things happen. Mm -hmm. So men would sit around and have a smoke or, you know, have a bit of a, you know, the local beer or whatever they have and generally chill and the women would do all the work that's how it was but when they saw the data in front of them they said oh my god something has to change so that led to a major conversation where now men are actively engaged in what traditionally used to be women's unpaid care as in either taking care of children or elderly or fetching water or cooking food or taking care of animals or whatever and that we thought that's the kind of conversation we need to have because as you rightly said, if women have more of the disposable income, as I say, if, if you teach a man, you know, one person benefits, if you teach a woman, the whole community benefits. But for that to really take place, she also needs to have the opportunity and the space right. to do that. So if she really has to invest in a child's education, other than just the money part, including in her own efforts, if she has to invest in a child's well-being, she also needs the time and support. So addressing unpaid care, addressing some of those unequal gender equations within families and within communities is very much part of that process so that we don't be in a situation where we see that women are disproportionately burdened for something that was done with the right intentions. Mm -hmm. Again, I've seen that 20 years ago or so, in the late 90s, when I visited a community in India, 
this was another organization that I was working and I was very proud of the work that we were doing because we had this wonderful program called Savings and Credit, mm -hmm. which was the women would form small groups of 10 each and they would put in a regular weekly saving from their meager earnings and it would be matched three to four times by our partner organization so that they would have a bigger community pool. Right. And then the women would grant loans to each other, but also make sure that they all repay. And we all thought that was wonderful. Uh, we had trainings in place in accounting, bookkeeping. The women were now going out for meetings and, you know, they, 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 they were now better dressed because they felt that they had to go to the district. Sure. They started taking care. Everything was working fine. And I was so happy and, and we were sure that. It, uh, so we decided to also talk to the children in the community because the women were they were because for, for the first time they saw that they were in control the men were feeling a bit disgruntled but the men were saying fine if as long as the money comes home i'm not bothered let her take the lead you know because it is an easier ride for the men then we spoke to the children the boys didn't have a view the girls said we hate the program huh. we absolutely hate the program so we were in a bit of a shock so why what happened you say you know what when our mums now go for all these meetings it's it falls onto us so now it's now we who take care of our younger siblings it's we who now had to do the cooking, the field wood, the water, the animals. So what's happening? We can't go to school now because there's so much of burden. We can't do our homework. We are failing in our lessons and there's no leisure time. Even their mums didn't know that. Right. Or even if, even if their mums knew it, it was kind of considered acceptable because, yeah, after all, you're girls. So, you know, someday you should be coming to our roles, isn't it? So should be going to that. That led to a huge conversation then. And we said, boys, what do you think? And just there, and this was just in one meeting, and you could see the look on the face of the boys. They were like, that, that was their oh my God moment and said, no, we need to do something about it. So coming back to your original question, absolutely right in investing in women's economic opportunity because we've got data on that. I mean, ActionAid had done a research that said that if women had equal access to the opportunities that men have in the developing countries, the women in the developing countries would have $9 trillion extra in their hands. Mm -hmm. So there's a very clear economic argument. There's a very, there should be a very clear human rights argument as well because it's about everybody being equal. So why can't women have the same opportunities? So that's another driver for women's economic empowerment. We know from experience and also evidence that when you have, when women have more disposable income in their hands, they do invest in families and communities, which is another great argument. But equally, it's also about saying that, but to do it in a manner that doesn't have negative and unintended consequences right. on the lives of women, we need to look at some of the other factors that determine uh, where they are and what their relative role and position is within the family, uh, so that we also give due recognition to unpaid care, quality of work, uh, redressal, uh, you know, if there are, because we know that there can be all kinds of harassment and abuses. Mm -hmm. So how do we make those workspaces safe as well? So it's fascinating. I mean, yeah, you no, start with one and you get into absolutely. everything else. But that whole learning uh, journey, not only is it fascinating, but it gives me and it gives the listeners some insight into your thought process and your operating process, because I guess you have an idea, you formulate a hypothesis of what sort of an intervention, quote unquote, program or project would look like. But then once you embark on it, you need to start adapting to the realities and the feedback loops and all of this. And I guess what that, if I step back from that a little bit, then I think, well, there's a risk element here mm -hmm. because you don't necessarily know what you're going to find when yeah. you embark on this journey. 
and you need to have mm. a healthy appetite for risk, sensibly calculated, yeah. but you need to appreciate that if you're funding something or if you're a philanthropist, that risk is part of the conversation and actually it's exciting because yeah. through risk you can achieve and find things that you would otherwise never have yeah. expected, but yeah. it's part of the conversation, isn't yeah. it? Absolutely. I, I would say that it's really important to be risk aware, but mm -hmm. not to be risk averse. Mm -hmm. uh, because if you, if you don't try some things, nothing will happen and it will still be the status quo. If you're in the business of shifting power, then we have to take some risks, but those risks have to be constantly assessed, as you said. And, uh, you know, nothing better than having those conversations with the people or who are going to be most impacted. Yeah. Because many times, and I myself am holding my hand up to that, you know, going with this very urban-centric um arrogance of having gone through university and all that say you know what i know what the problem is so i know what the solution is come on let me help you with the solution of course it happened long 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 ago but when you think about it you're still quite ashamed at what you did when you mm -hmm. were much younger when you didn't have the either the maturity or the modesty to recognize that you know people actually people who know who can identify the problem also know what the solution is they just need somebody to listen to them mm -hmm. and somebody to support them and just a bit of a helping hand so that they can jump over and that they can claim that space. So the role of organizations like ours is to, to, to see to what extent can we create that enabling environment mm -hmm. where people feel confident enough and have the right capacities to jump in and, and reclaim the space that is rightfully theirs. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to define it for them. So possibly in that example that I gave over the girl children, possibly nobody asked the women what the negative consequences might have been. Uh, and equally, the women may not have thought about it in that way because for them, it was all about, again, the intentions might have been absolutely right. Their, their view might have been, fine, I mean, if there's an opportunity to sort of increase my income, it, it must be good, isn't it? So to, 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 do, to, to get to a better position, you might have to compromise on something. So that's okay, isn't it? Now, how do you get to a position where you even have this conversation that possibly that's not okay yeah. because in you getting over the power on something else, somebody else is being pushed under. Yeah. Uh, as, as the saying goes, you know, when you wipe your dirt off something, your hands get clean, but something else gets dirty. <laughs> you know, so it should not be a case because it has to be a win-win for everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's why we thought that some of these conversations around the unpaid care is really powerful, particularly in changing the male attitudes to female workloads, which often is taken as granted, mm -hmm. because that's what they've been doing for centuries. So what's the big deal? No, there is a big deal because because they've done it for centuries. High time you guys also yeah. wake up to it and 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 do something as your share, so that it becomes much more equal. So the whole family uh, uh, is in a better place, better leisure time, better well-being, better health, better income. So problems are complex. We need to listen to the local environment and stakeholders. Assume that we don't have a monopoly on the truth, and enable and empower those on the ground and problems might have dynamics that are not immediately evident. I think these are all the sort of takeaways that I'm gathering from you. Any other bits before we wrap up? The only other thing I would say, a topic that I'm very passionate about is to do all that externally, we need to think about what's the culture within our own organizations. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes we tend to believe that all those things are important out there, uh, but we are okay. 
often that's not the case. That uh, it, 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 the, the, It's really important to make the connection between what you want to achieve outside and what kind of world would you like to see outside and recreate the same for yourself within your organization because at least within your organization, it's very much within your control. Externally, it's not. So it's great to have an aspiration for the external, mm -hmm. try it out internally. So you walk the talk, create that culture, ask those questions, make sure that, you know, even within your organizations, there are discussions around power, who has the power, who has the privilege, who gets to speak, so that anybody, everybody, irrespective of what their background is, what their culture is, what their age is, what their skill sets are, uh, they feel confident that I have an equal stake in the mm -hmm. organization as anybody else. Now that's that's quite difficult and, and we're trying it and, and we're only trying it. I'm, I'm saying we're still trying it and we, sometimes we think we've got it but no, you know that you, it's, it can be a case of one step forward and four steps backwards mm -hmm. but the important thing is to keep trying it and that is what we have defined within Action as as feminist principles mm -hmm. which is the converse of patriarchal norms and say try it. So ask some basic questions. Check your power and privilege. For example, who starts talking first? How much do you talk? You know, do you give space to others to talk? How do you react when you talk? How do you react when others talk to you? So focus a lot about your power, privilege, and the signals you're giving outside yeah. that. And second question is, think very carefully, who is framing this agenda? Mm -hmm. um, again, there are no answers to these things. There are no perfect answers. But as long as we keep asking the right questions, we can only get better. Uh, that's absolutely wonderful. Such a great way to wrap things up. How accessible are you? If one of the listeners wanted to get a hold of you, drop you an email, Twitter, LinkedIn. I'm that? very active on Twitter. Okay. And um, what's your Twitter handle? It's called Girish Menon AA UK. Okay. Um, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. When I say active on Twitter, I'm on Twitter pretty much every single day. LinkedIn probably every day. So yes. Uh, <laughs> I should be accessible. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, look, thank you so very much for the time today. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this conversation. I walk away much more informed on a wide range of topics, and I hope listeners do as well. So I thank you so much. It's a pleasure, Alberto. Thank you so much. And Perfect. thank you to the listeners as well. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better.